For those of you guys who don't know me, my name is Brad Lagos. I serve as the pastor of ministry development uh, at Bethel Church. I kind of get around to a lot of the different campuses, but uh, if, if you're new or visiting, we're kind of in the midst of a search right now for uh, our new uh, campus pastor here for this location. And so in the meantime, you might be seeing me and a few others occasionally here opening God's Word, and it's my opportunity to do that uh, with you all here today. And this is actually my first time teaching here in this new facility, actually. It's been a while. So it's fantastic to see all you in this place and a privilege to uh, open God's Word here. I also want to say, you know, last weekend was a little bit of a tougher weekend for us just from the worship perspective. We are having, those of you here, we are having some pretty crazy feedback issues. I'll let you know the A-team was called in. And uh, we worked hard at that this week, and we found out and diagnosed there was just some crazy thing that happened with a short, I think, attributed to installation that just blew out a couple boards and things. And so we got some major new equipment in that was still on warranty, praise God for that. And uh, we think we fixed it. So hopefully you won't have any more of those uh, feedback issues, and we can all be thankful for that, can't we? Our subject today is uh, when my family isn't perfect. Now, who here can relate to that? Like, we all if, can relate to that. If you can't relate to that, you're not telling the truth, right? I know I certainly can relate to that. I, I genuinely love all of those in my own personal family, but let me tell you, over the years, the, the relationships between the different people in my family, and especially my extended family, have been quite a mess. My parents have, for example, had a lot of conflict when I was growing up. In fact, uh, when I was in fourth grade, my folks divorced. And so I'm not from that healthy Christian nuclear family that maybe some of you are from here and been blessed with. And actually, upon that divorce and an unusual turn of events, my dad actually retained custody of myself and my two siblings, the three of us, and so we remained with, with him under his care. He eventually remarried when I was in seventh grade, and so uh, many of my formative years I was raised by my stepmother. But after nearly 25 years of that marriage, my father and my stepmother, that relationship also went south. In fact, things got really bad, and uh, a year and a half ago or so, I flew down to Florida where they were living to um, help them through really some very intensive marital counseling. And let me tell you, that is an awkward place to be in, to be the child doing the marital therapy for your folks. That's, that was an experience, I'll tell you, and a very, very difficult one. But sadly, it didn't change the course, and this past fall, the, the divorce was finalized despite my recommendations and efforts to promote reconciliation there, and so it has absolutely been a painful couple years for uh, my family and all the mess that's been caused by this, and, you know, we see that also in my wife's family as well. You know, our Christmas holiday had some great moments with her family, but there's some kind of stuff that's being worked through right now, serious stuff in that family, and there's some painful stuff, some awkward stuff, some intense stuff. And we spent time talking through these things this holiday, and it kind of lowered our joy a little bit to have to work through some of these things. So I'm well aware of the imperfections that exist within families. In many ways, I've been living and walking through a lot of this kind of stuff myself my entire life. And so the subject that we have here today, it deeply resonates personally with me. And I hope that then by God's grace, I can take some of the experiences and some of the struggles and things that I've worked through and share them with you that would be an encouragement and help to you. And certainly as I am talking about these things, things are coming to your mind about your own family, right? You're compiling in your head your own list of family imperfections, thinking of names of people who have caused hurt or heartache in your own family, situations that are very difficult. Clearly, no family is perfect. Most, most are not even close. Of course, 
We do work very hard, though, to make it appear that our families are perfect, don't we? And the social media and the Pinteresting of American family allows us to show off in a way that makes us look like our very best. And so our family pictures, they just kind of have this ethereal glow to them, you know? And, and we post family pictures online or in our Christmas cards that just look eerily similar to like the Garden of Eden. We have perfect smiles, perfect colors. We even use technology to like mash two photos together, right? Like, oh, he looks bad here, but she looks good here, and so, uh, vice versa. So we take those faces and we mash them together and we create this image that looks perfect, but it's not real, right? And our Christmas cards and our Christmas letters describe yet another year of amazing family harmony and accomplishment. And it would appear, it would appear that most of us are nearly perfect people, married to nearly perfect spouses, raising up nearly perfect children. You know what I'm talking about, right? This is the image we present of ourselves. Of course, some of us can't hide it, though, and things have hit the wall and gone so bad in your family that there's no pretending. The marriage has ended in divorce, or your teen or adult child has just gone off the rails, or that feud with that sibling has become very public and known to all in your family. It is a private chaos, and it is a public mess. Real family life is sometimes tends to swing between these two uh, polarities, depending on the season. We sometimes, just when we think that our family is going to achieve this great harmony and look like the Garden of Eden in some ways, something's said. Some terrible decision is made, some horrible circumstance happens, and all of a sudden it swings the other way, and things are a mess, and Eden is gone. And sometimes those hardships and those challenges, they, they pass by and, and, and we move on. But sometimes those challenges, they're a permanent nature. And we're stuck with it. And there's no changing it. There's just dealing with it. And so we try to persevere through our family trials and imperfections. Sometimes we try to change them. Other times we just say, man, I just got to resolve to work through, just, just endure through this. Those are a couple options. But today I'm going to present and can ask us to consider a third option. Not trying to change our family, not just enduring the circumstances in our family, but redeeming our family for God's glory. Redeeming it. And to address this, first I need to, I think, lay out, though, some biblical truths from God's Word that God's Word says about family. Biblical truths about family brokenness and conflict. And God's Word has much to say about this subject, and I'm going to try to summarize it in just four kind of summary truths here, okay? Four summary truths about family brokenness and conflict, okay? You ready? Here's the first one. First truth is this. We are created to experience a perfect family. We are created to experience a perfect family. Of course, we see this biblically in the first family was, that was created in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 2.25, God made the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, and, the, and we see there in that verse, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. There's perfect harmony there. Adam and Eve were naked and they walked with each other and they were not ashamed. In other words, there was complete relational vulnerability between them. There was complete, total acceptance. There was nothing between them. There were no clothes. But there's also no conflict, no struggle, no baggage from the past, no unmet promises, no letdowns, no bitterness. They were God's perfect family, and this is God's design for us. 
We're created to experience this kind of harmony, free from strife, free from sin, free from pain, free from problems. We, we also see here in the garden the simplicity of the family structure. There are no step-parents. There's no foster parents. There's no kids with two moms. There's no kids with two dads. The nuclear family is God's design, and it is a good design. And like everything else in all of creation here at the very beginning, this initial family was declared very good. And so from the beginning, we're created to experience a perfect family. But we all know the story, right? Sin entered the world, and things changed. And that leads us to our second biblical truth, which is this. Sin has corrupted every facet of creation, including the family. It's corrupted everything, especially our families. See, immediately after the fall, we see God pronounced over Adam and Eve the consequences that their sin would have upon their relationship and upon their family. So in Genesis 3.16, we see the Lord declare to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. All sorts of allusions there to types of disharmony and conflict that can happen within that relationship and within even the process of giving birth to children itself. And then, of course, we see in the next generation, the next immediate generation, how quickly the harmony of a perfect family just eroded. So in Genesis chapter 4, verse 8, we see this. And when they were in the field, meaning Cain and Abel, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And so here we have now in the second generation of human existence, we have one of the worst things that could possibly happen in a family. We have one brother who kills another brother. Now I'm sure there are some terrible things that have happened in your family, but for most of us it's not gotten this bad. Most of us has not, have, have not had a sibling murder another sibling. This is bad. This is really bad. So from the very beginning, we see that family relationships have been broken in the worst possible way imaginable. It didn't like build towards this over the centuries. Immediately, sin under the world, and we have incredible family dysfunction and pain. And this horrendous act of family conflict paved the way for all the future conflict and pain and corruption that we face today. Divorce, rebellious wayward children, awkward holiday gatherings, holiday power struggles and betrayals, deceptions, lies, people trading natural natural relationships for unnatural ones, so now we have same-sex marriage. Other corruptions like plural marriage, are people living together, pretending that they're married when they're really not? And we see in all of this brokenness and dysfunction, as we see it, we're reminded of sin and how we're not in the garden anymore. That something has happened, that something devastating has happened. Sin has entered the world and family life and family relationships are not functioning as they are created to be. We long to get back to the garden. But we're not in the garden now. No matter what our Facebook posts or holiday cards might, might say. Sin has corrupted every facet of creation, including the family. That's the second biblical truth. And here's a third. Third point is this. Family pain is heightened by the idols of our hearts. Family pain is heightened by the idols 
of our hearts. So now what is an idol? An idol is anything that we look to for ultimate meaning, for ultimate significance. Our idols are things that we elevate to ultimate things. So like must-haves, things that I things that I can't be happy without this kind of things. Common idols include things like money, sex, power, materialism, control, fame, power, happiness. Things that we desperately yearn for, things that we we craft our entire identity around. And can a family become an idol? Can a good thing like a family become an idol? Can my kids and their successes in life be an idol to me? Can the approval of my family members be, in in a sense, an idol to me? Can the emotional or physical intimacy that I have with my spouse, can that become an idol to me? See, it's easy to see idolatry in, in, in things like money and power. Those things are just so clearly of the world. They are uh, unspiritual. But can my family actually become an idol? Think of it this way. Can I, can I look to my spouse as the greatest source for my greatest source of happiness? Or if I'm single, can, I, can that dream and anticipation of being married, can that become such a longing that it becomes an idol in your life? Can my emotional well-being be completely dependent upon the approval of my wife or my husband? Am I totally dejected if my kid doesn't make the cut for the athletic team or scores below 30 in the ACT? Do I experience just days of depression when the family vacation is canceled? Or when does my world feel like it's totally crumbled when the holidays don't really play out as I was hoping or expecting that they would. You see, we know that we are idolizing our family too much when our emotional well-being or satisfaction in life is just so massively dependent upon them. Or when my self-image is, is so defined by the accomplishments or successes or harmony that I'm able to present to others in my family. So when my child does well in school or in this athletic accomplishment, and I think about how that makes me look good in the eyes of others. Where my family appears orderly, I anticipate People seeing that and appreciating that, complimenting me on that. When that cute little story about my family gets posted on Facebook and gets a lot of likes, I perceive satisfaction knowing that people think well of me. Those are some indications that perhaps our family is becoming perhaps a little too much of an idol in our life. And God's Word says much to do, it says much about the danger of idols. Isaiah chapter, verse four, chapter 44 in particular has a good section on idolatry, and here's a couple of verses that Isaiah says there. Verse 9, all who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Having an idol does not profit you, Isaiah 44, 9 says. Or verse 20, he feeds on ashes. Making the illusion if you're feeding on idols is like feeding on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Is this idol, in a sense, the hope that I hold, and the harmony, and the peace, and the joy I'm hoping to give it to me, is that not a lie? You see, the point here is that idols always disappoint. Idols never live up to their potential. They always lead to discontent, discontentment and pain and hurt. All, all of your family idols will at some point in some way disappoint you. If your spouse is your idol, your spouse is going to let you down. Every marriage will have problems and disappointments. The kids will frustrate you. They will sadden you. Your extended family will experience conflict 
and pain. And we, we place too much of our identity and too much of our self-worth and hopes in our family. Those good things, they are good things, but they can become unhealthy idols, which ultimately leads then to heightened pain. Because the hope that we're placing in those things ultimately will fail. And that failed hope then robs us with joy that we should be receiving if our hope is placed in something else, namely the Lord and His promises to us. So love your family for sure. Care for them. Treasure them. But don't idolize them. Don't seek ultimate joy and happiness from them. Don't find your identity solely in them. That is opening yourself up to unnecessary pain and disappointment when your family fails, when your family has faults. Because those, those things will happen. Family pain is heightened when we make aspects of our family idols in our hearts. That's a third biblical truth, and here's, here's a fourth, an encouraging one. No hurt or imperfection is beyond God's power to redeem. No hurt, no imperfection in our lives and our families is beyond God's power to redeem. And while the Garden of Eden is gone, it's gone for now, there's another garden that every family can go to, the Garden of Gethsemane. Sinners are not welcome at the Garden of Eden, but sinners are beckoned to come to the Garden of Gethsemane. Because in the garden, the Son of God resolved to take upon himself all the guilt and the shame and the pain and the hurt of every family sin. He resolved to provide forgiveness for and healing for every family sin, like bitterness and hate and unkind words and betrayal and selfishness and abandonment and disregard. And God's plan for the family is to redeem it by changing each family member individually from the inside out, by changing the heart of each family member to love him more, to be softened to the Lord. Ezekiel writes about this when he says in chapter 11, verse 19, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. God's restorative work in the individual life and our family relationships, they sometimes become stone cold. So often those relationships, they feel rocky at, at best, but God redeems things that are broken. He makes things new again. And he will probably not on this side of eternity restore your family to that utopic perfection that you hope for, but he can begin that process of restoring it and redeeming it and making it into a more perfect family, the family that you were created for in the first place. Now, it may not be God's design to do all of that in dramatic ways for your family here right now and all those people, but I can guarantee that he has that heart and that desire for you. He wants to change you, to have you confront your idols and tear them down and enthrone Jesus in the, in the heart of your life and become the very best husband, the very best wife, the best mother, the best father, the best grandparent, the best child, the best son, daughter, aunt, uncle, sibling that you can possibly be. See, God, nothing is beyond God's ability to redeem and to repair. No matter how messy, no matter how corrupted, no matter how painful the situation can be. And that restoration often begins 
in the individual heart. And it can begin in your heart. As God does that work in you and uses you then as a catalyst to bring about healing in your family. Nothing is beyond his ability to repair and to redeem. That's a certain biblical truth. And it's absolutely one that we should cling to and hold to as we struggle with family brokenness and pain. But how exactly does God go about this redeeming work of families? I mean, we all want this, right? We all want Jesus to reign in our hearts and in our homes and in our relationships, our families. We want to return to as best we can here in this life, that idyllic setting in the Garden of Eden. What part exactly do we have in making this happen? These are some great truths, but what part do we have in making this happen? We have a very important part. And so let's talk about now some ways that we partner with the Lord to redeem our family imperfections for His glory. Redeeming our family imperfections for God's glory. And I want to share now five things about how we can work to redeem our broken and messed up families for God's glory. Okay? Ready? Five things now how we can work to do this. Here's the first. Look in the mirror. You aren't perfect either. That's the first. Look in the mirror. You're not perfect either. You know what we do when things often go wrong in our family? Our immediate family, especially, you know one of the first things we do? We blame shift, right? We try and redirect responsibility onto somebody else. Now, I'm certainly guilty of this. Just ask my wife. Because when things get a little rocky in our marriage or our family, whatever the case may be, and we're having some uh, conversations, sometimes these, these two little words come out of my mouth, okay? And these two little words that come out of my mouth in the midst of that are, but you, to which she then usually interrupts and forcefully replies, oh, no, mister, don't you try to turn it around that way, right? Husbands and wives, you, you know what I'm talking about here, don't you? When... But part of the problem in our families, we are. We're part of the problem. Do you agree with that? Granted, there, there are some problems in our families, especially our extended families, that we don't really have any part in, no culpability for. We're more of a victim of those things that have happened. They've happened maybe at a distance. We're, we're more a victim of a problem than a contributor to it. But when we get entangled in the problems, our tendency is to first usually look elsewhere for an excuse rather than take responsibility for our own culpability for the problem. And what does God's Word have to say to us about our culpability for the problems around us? Well, some well-known passages, Romans 3.10 says, as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. Nobody is beyond, um, no one's perfect. We all have our faults. Or 1 Timothy 1.5, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul reflecting on his own depths of depravity, saying, I am as bad as everybody else. I'm actually worse than anybody else. So we all have faults. We're all sinners who make mistakes. We all say ridiculous, dumb things, right? If your spouse is sitting next to you, they can think of some ridiculous, dumb things that you've said. I guarantee it. We all slack off and fail to meet our family obligations at times. We're all part of the problem. And even the Apostle Paul, who was certainly greatly admired by his peers and those who saw him considered himself the foremost of sinners over all the church. And do you see yourself as the foremost of sinners in your family? Do you see yourself as the foremost of sinners in your family? How much are, are, are you aware of your own failings? 
as opposed to how much are you aware of the failings of others. Now, our, our pastoral and counseling staff here, we work a lot at shepherding and helping people through marriage problems, in particular other family problems, marriage problems especially. And you know one, one of the biggest hurdles that we face when we do that? One of the biggest hurdles we face in marriage counseling is self-righteousness of a spouse who thinks that he or she is totally not at fault at all, who often embraces little to no culpability for the dysfunction in the relationship or in the family. And all they can do is all they can do is blame and accuse rather than look inward and reflect and say, what part have I contributed to this problem? How quick we are just in our natural selves to cast blame, to throw stones. And what did Jesus say about this? And he talked with one man, gave him this little parable, he said in Luke chapter 6, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck, take out that speck that is in your own eye, when you yourself do not see that a log is in your eye? You hypocrite. First take out the log of your own eye, and then you will clearly see the speck that is in your brother's eye. So look in the mirror. You're not perfect either. None of us are. You are certainly probably not responsible for every problem. But it is likely that you contribute to more problems than you might first acknowledge. So search, search your heart. Search your life. Examine your culpability for your problems. And in that, own it. Own up to it. Man up to it. Woman up to it. Be humble. Be contrite. Confess your own sin because one of the best ways to begin fixing family problems is to lead out in brokenness. Because as those around you see you admitting your fault, you know what that does? It softens their heart to be inclined to do the same. They then often begin to say, maybe I've got something too that I need to confess and ask forgiveness for and, and real healing real change can begin. You may not be able to change your family members. You almost certainly cannot yourself do it. But by the grace of God, you can endeavor certainly to change yourself. And it is God's design that often that internal change that you experience and the way that you confess and realize your own feelings, God uses that as an impetus to begin that same change in others as well. When they see you change first, and so that's one way we can work to redeem our family problems. Look in the mirror. Admit our own culpability. Ask for forgiveness of those things. God might just use that to get the snowball rolling and involve others now who follow your example of being humble in the same way as well. So look in the mirror. That's one way. Here's another one. Apply the grace of the gospel. Apply the grace of the gospel. Now, the gospel is a message of love and forgiveness, and expressions of love and forgiveness are powerful tools to alleviate family troubles. Remember what Peter says to us in 1 Peter 4.8. 1 Peter 4.8, he says this, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Keep loving one another. He says here the most important thing is to keep loving one another earnestly. And the emphasis of the text here is on the, this, that little word, keep. Paul assumes that there will be challenges that tempt us to stop loving each other. So despite all, those, but despite all those things that come, he says, persevere in your loving. Keep striving to love. Long-term relationships require long-term perseverance love. And notice what that long-term relationship often 
brings with it, though. He says, love covers a multitude of sins. It covers a multitude of sins. See, sinners sin against each other a lot. Husbands and wives sin against each other a lot. Parents and children sin against each other a lot. And families today, usually those sins, they're not of the violent nature. They're not of the criminal nature. Usually not going around physically assaulting each other or stealing each other's bank accounts, although those things do happen. They are very grievous when they do. But it's more common that we're just disrespectful towards each other. Not keeping our promises, being selfish, being rude, being insensitive, being neglectful, being annoying, being unfaithful. And in any family relationship, there are a multitude of sins of these categories, but love covers over them. That is the grace of the gospel. The gospel is the message of love and forgiveness. And the Apostle Paul says it this way in, in Colossians 3.12, put on then as God God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So you want to redeem some of the hurts and some of the challenges in your family? Start with some generous and sincere expressions of forgiveness. And that can be very hard when you're hurt be very difficult when you're offended. But think about the example that Jesus set for us. Was he offended and hurt by our sin? How deep was Jesus' pain at our betrayal? How saddened was his heart by the way that people treated him and neglected him and betrayed him? And what did he do despite all of it? He gave us the greatest example of love and forgiveness that this world has ever known. He opened his arms wide, even though he had no obligation to do so. And he forgave those who would be his children, those who would be in his forever family. And he he took the initiative with that forgiveness. He loved us first before we ever loved him. Before we ever gave back anything in return to him, he forgave us. He took the initiative. And this is the grace of the gospel. And it has power to utterly transform your family. Especially if you lead the way in it. If you demonstrate that grace yourself first, even to people who wrong you, to hurt you, who offend you, who betray you, to let your love for them cover over a multitude of sins. To be the initiator of that. That paves the way for your family to experience type of restoration, reconciliation that the gospel itself provides for us to God through Christ. So apply the grace of the gospel to your family. Forgive much because you have been forgiven much. Allow grace to cover a multitude of sins because you have had all your sins covered by the blood of Christ. How much more do we need to afford the same blessing, the same privilege to others? who are likewise not worthy of it. Just as we are not worthy of God's grace to us. So apply the gospel of grace to your family relationships. That's the third response we can have, or that's the second response we can have to family dysfunction. Here's the third. Trust in the sovereignty of God. Trust in the sovereignty 
of God. Now, I know this is a cliche that sometimes we say all the time, you know, say here at Bethlehem, we really do believe it, that God is in control. That God's control over everything that happens, that is his exercise of his sovereignty. He reigns and he rules over all creation. And there is not one speck of creation that escapes his ability to reign over it. He is in utter and complete control. And even if your family is a huge mess, you know the things that are going on in your family right now are a total wreck. Your family is not beyond God's ability to repair and to renew. And there's nothing that happens in your family that catches him by surprise. In fact, there is in the mystery and the sovereignty of God some purpose and some plan behind the hardship that you currently face in whatever those relationships might be. And we see this, for example, all the time throughout the Old Testament. You know, the Old Testament is just full of just incredible examples of family dysfunction and pain and heartache and strife. You just see it all, just read through the Old Testament narrative. Everybody had family problems. Abraham and Sarah, they longed to have a child, yet in God's sovereignty, he withheld that child from them for a very long time. Or the royal Egyptian family that raised Moses, he turned against him and drove him out of the land, yet God in his sovereignty knew that had to happen in order to prepare Moses to eventually return to lead his people out of Egypt. But what about Job, who lost his entire family to death? And in yet, yet in that, what did Job say? He trusted in the sovereignty of God. He said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. David, of course, faced incredible family pain and strife. He lost all sorts of his family to war, including his best friend and adopted brother Jonathan. And don't forget about David's son Absalom, who led a large uprising against his father. The son went to war against the father. He tried to usurp the kingly title from his father, Absalom, betrayed David. And he was eventually killed in the conflict. Such incredible pain to have your own son betray you and be killed in that, in that betrayal. Yet God in his sovereignty, he was in control of all of that. Read through the Old Testament and you see time and time again family hardship and family strife. And Jesus even himself faced that. He himself was betrayed by Judas, who was one of his 12 disciples, who was in, and the disciples were, in a sense, kind of Jesus' extended family. Yet God had a very good, sovereign purpose and plan in that betrayal, didn't he? Think about all that happened that was good and a blessing to God's people through that betrayal. Another clear example of this is, is the life of Joseph who was betrayed by his envious brothers and sold into slavery in Egypt. But when famine hit and Joseph's family back in, the, back in Israel was now in great need, they were able to come to Joseph, and Joseph was able to help and assist them rescue their lives, basically, because of the position that he had risen to in Egypt. And in reflecting on his own betrayal by his brothers, who sold him into slavery, but also about God had used that betrayal to eventually save their very lives. This is what Joseph said. He said in Genesis 50, 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive, as is here today. So God brings about good through disaster. He brings about blessing through mess. He restores Families that are a wreck into being tokens of his grace. He accomplishes his good and sovereign will through the choices of sinful people. I have tons of examples of that from in my own life. 
See, I don't, I don't, honestly, I don't know if I would even be a Christian today if it wasn't for my parents' divorce. That broken relationship set into motion a chain of events that caused my family to relocate from Kansas City to Chicago, where I, then I got connect, connected with a bunch of Christian friends who exposed me to the truth and the joy that can be found in the gospel that eventually led me to faith. That then led me to hear the call to vocational ministry so that now I am here now sharing this very message with you today and I highly doubt that I would be here now if it wasn't for my parents' divorce 30 years ago. Was that divorce full of pain and heartache? You bet it was. Did it displease God? Absolutely. But did God take that and eventually use it to bring about incredible good? Indeed he did. Navigating our family pain and dysfunction often requires us to see that God is doing something through those hardships, even if we can't see it. To trust that someday we're going to be able to see on the other side of it some good thing that he put in motion through that trial. So even now, as I struggle in faith with some of these struggles in my own extended family, do you know what God is doing through me as I kind of walk through that and even lead my extended family through these things? He is equipping me to help better encourage others who will likewise face the same trial. To have a better ministry with people who are experiencing brokenness in their own family. To connect with people in ways that otherwise I wouldn't be able to if I hadn't faced that same thing myself. If my family was perfect. See, God is at work in your life, in your family, even in the hard things, even if you can't see it. So have faith and trust in that. Trust in the sovereignty of God, and that will help you through any trial that you face. Helps you redeem your family hurts for God's glory. Here's a fourth application. Work hard. Work hard. And amid all of our family struggles, we sometimes get to the point where we think, you know, what's the use? What's the point? I can't do this anymore. The situation is hopeless. I just don't want to, I just don't want to work at it any longer. Listen, don't, don't give in to that way of thinking. We must continue to do all that we can to improve the health of our relationships and our families, and that takes work, hard work, long-suffering work, but we must never give up. Fighting for our families is worth it. And what does that fight look like? There's many ways it looks like. One is that you are constantly working at being the peacemaker. Romans 12, 8 says this, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I love that little verse there because it is so realistic. It acknowledges that we can't solve every problem. If possible, so far as it depends on you. It doesn't all depend on us. There are situations that are beyond our ability to control. There are relationships that will be beyond our ability to repair. And there is freedom in that, isn't there? We don't need to feel this burden and this guilt if this person doesn't repent, if this person doesn't work to resolve the issue that we have between them. It doesn't all depend on us. But there is a challenge. So far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. There will always be conflict. And sometimes that conflict lingers and it doesn't go away. And what this verse calls us to do is to make sure that that conflict doesn't remain unresolved because of us. Our responsibility is to have the spirit of a peacemaker. Sometimes we can only do so much, right? And if that family member wants to remain angry, I can't change that. 
If that person, my extended family, just wants to kind of dwell in their bitterness towards me, even though I have pleaded for their forgiveness and resolved to do everything I can to make things right, I can't change that. But I should always do my part to promote peace by being humble, by looking in the mirror, by applying the grace of the gospel, by confessing my own failures, by asking for forgiveness and having a posture towards everybody that is open and gracious and kind and approachable. That's being a peacemaker. That's one way you work hard at changing your family, by changing yourself first and doing everything you can to be at peace with those around you. There's another thing you do, and that is this. You continually strive to lead and to serve your family well. You work hard at leading and serving and caring for your family. And this can be tough. This can be really tough. Being in a family is not easy. Being a parent of children is not easy. But parents, you have a God-given responsibility to work hard at growing and maturing your family. No matter even what age your children are. You have a high and holy calling throughout your life to lead your children well, to give them a great example, to shepherd them well. You have a critical responsibility always throughout your life to serve your spouse well. And this is tough because sometimes the kids or the spouse, they just get so darn annoying. Sometimes you just want to escape and hide, right? My wife and I have this little saying we often joke about, and it's, something like this. I just want to go hide out in my treehouse, we sometimes say. And we get that from this show on TV that, for whatever reason, we end up watching sometimes called Treehouse Masters. And it's about these, like, amazing, basically, middle, mini houses that these people build up in these trees. They're like these just awesome little forts that's like, I just love to have one of those. These little legit houses just kind of off away someplace private, and we sometimes joke, man, wouldn't it be great if we just had this cozy little treehouse in the backyard that we could just go hide in? Because we have a nine and a seven and a four-year-old after all. And sometimes it gets really hard parenting those kids, caring for those crazy kids. They just wear us out. And sometimes Jessica just wants to escape to that little treehouse just to to avoid her kids, probably also to avoid me sometimes. But we don't have that treehouse. And frankly, we never will, because our obligation is not to escape the crazy challenges that are in our home. Our obligation is to persevere through those family challenges and to strive hard at working at those things and making those things better and serving one another well so that we press on, even if we're running out of energy or emotional capacity to do it. We work hard. We try to serve each other and our children well, even in those moments when our heart isn't in it. So work hard. Invest in those relationships. Take the extra time to play with the kids or to get on the phone with them. Prioritize sitting down and having the difficult conversation. Work hard at just seeing the good things in your spouse, not the negative things that so easily rise to the surface. Demonstrate love to your family members in the way that they need to receive that love. Another little thing that Jessica often says to me is be a student of your wife. Be a student of your wife. And what she means by that is learn about me. Learn about the ways that I like to be loved. And show me that. 
demonstrate that. For her, that means that I prioritize finding time just to sit down and talk and connect with her in a relational way or sometimes surprising her with just little gifts or acts of service. And so I'm making an effort to do that right now. I'm trying one of the Christmas gifts I gave her. It's kind of a cop-out, but it's turning out not to be. Was I gave her 31 days of surprises. So every day I'm trying to come up with just a fun little thing that I can do, whether it be a little unexpected act of service or a little gift that I bring or whatever. I'm on day 10 now. I'm running out of ideas. So (laughs) if any of you have some things, I'd be happy to, to receive them. But you get the idea, right? Working hard on your family means making a continual investment in them. To love and to serve them the way that they need to be and want to be loved, to lead and to care for them well. Do that and also do everything in your power to be at peace with people and that will help resolve so many of the family challenges that you might face. And finally, I would add this, work hard at praying for your family. Make a commitment to bring those people before the Lord and His throne of grace every day by pleading for them. Prayer is powerful. Prayer changes things. And how foolish we are if we don't tap into that great resource to help bring blessing and joy to our family. So we should work hard on behalf of our family by continually bringing them before the Lord in prayer. I've said that there are five ways that we endeavor to redeem our family for God's glory. We've walked through four of them. You see them up there. Look in the mirror, apply the grace of the gospel, trust in the sovereignty of God, work hard, And the fifth and the final one is this. It's not necessarily something you do. It's more of an attitude that you put on. And it's this. Have hope. Have hope. That someday all this family struggle and toil, it is going to meet its end. See, God gives promises to us that someday he will make all things new. Taking us to Revelation. The end of the Bible, chapter 22, verse 5, we see this. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The picture here is one of beautiful renewal. Renewal of all creation and renewal of all relationships. First and foremost, our relationship with the Lord, but also by by implication, our relationship with one another as all sin is eradicated. And God's people enjoy perfect, harmonious relationships, the perfect family that they were made for. God restores that eventually. One day he brings us back to the garden that we so earnestly yearn for and are trying to achieve here in this life. Another picture of that in just the next chapter forward in Revelation verse 3 in chapter 22. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and the servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need No light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Picture of perfect restoration, relational harmony, together, 
the perfect family that you long for will someday be yours. And it will be yours for all of eternity. Trusting in God's sovereignty, we don't know exactly who will be a part of that perfect family. But for those in Christ, we know that we all get to return to the garden someday. That the struggles we have here, the unmet hopes, they will someday be filled. And we long for that. We wait for that. We have hope that our current family is not our eternal one. And in that we find joy. But in the meantime, we work hard. We're introspective. We look in the mirror and think, what is my own culpability in this? We pray. We trust God. We apply the grace of the gospel in all relationships. And through that diligent, unending effort, maybe, just maybe through God's grace, we can bring still yet some of that garden, a picture of what that eternal relationship will be into our lives now. And that pursuit is certainly worth it. And with that, let me just close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we come and our hearts are heavy and certainly burdened just by the dysfunction and the pain and the hardship that we all face in our own relationships. But God, we thank, we're so thankful that your grace is greater than all of it. Lord, that there is not one situation that is beyond your ability to redeem and to restore. Lord, that there is always hope. And so, Father, we just pray that you would use us to do our part, to be humble and contrite, to work hard, to see the grace that you have applied to us and the forgiveness that you've given us and help us to more freely extend that to others that we might be an impetus and a mechanism for restoration and harmony in our own relationships, in our own family. Lord, may we just model to those around us Jesus and his selfless nature in loving and forgiving us. And through that, use us to bring great hope and great joy into our lives and to our families and to our homes. Ultimately, not just for our pleasure, Lord, but for yours and for the sake of your glory. And it is the name of our precious Savior, Jesus, that we pray these things.